Chapter 9 of The Emancipation of South America by Bartolomé Mitre. Translated by William Pilling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Natter. Cuyo, 1814-1815. The district of Cuyo lies to the east of the Cordillera, between 31 and 35 degrees of south latitude, and extends eastward to the 66 degree of west longitude, where the Andean formation dies away in the vast plain of the Argentine Pampa. Here the snow waters flowing from the mountain ranges lose themselves in lakes or cut for themselves channels through the sandy soil, forming a network of inland rivers which flow on undeterminately till they disappear. Peopled by colonists from east and west, this region was the point of union between two separate peoples, in whose alliance lay the destinies of all the Spanish colonies washed by the Pacific. Mendoza, San Juan, and San Luis were grouped together to form the province of Cuyo, when San Martin was named governor in 1814. Here he found the materials he required for the great enterprise he had in view. In 1810, the inhabitants of this province were barely 40,000 in number, but they were a hard-working, thrifty race, easily amenable to discipline. Traders from Mendoza and San Juan crossed the Andes to Chile, and Pampa to Buenos Aires, with troops of carts drawn by bullocks, or with troops of pack mules laden with wine, dried fruits, and flour. The men of San Luis were graziers of cattle and of sheep, famed for their skill as horsemen and as Indian fighters. Without knowledge of the character of this people, it is impossible to comprehend how San Martin could in this one province raise an invincible army which, sustained by it alone for three years, liberated two republics and spread the principles of the Argentine Revolution over an entire continent. Determined to keep free from all personal obligations to the instruments of his policy, San Martin refused to occupy the house allotted to him by the Cabildo of Mendoza, gave up half his salary as governor, and in 1815 sent his wife back to Buenos Aires in pursuance of the system of rigid economy which he imposed upon himself and carried out ruthlessly in every department of his administration. In January 1815, he was promoted by government to the rank of general of brigade, which appointment he accepted only on the understanding that he should resign as soon as the state was secured from Spanish domination, and steadily refused any further promotion. Some historians have seen in this systematic self-abnegation an imitation of the cardinal who hobbled on crutches to seize the keys of St. Peter. Doubtless he had his ambitions, but no such design appears in the course of his life, which was consecrated to his own people, to the complete sacrifice of all personal interest. According to him, Chile was the citadel of America, and must be reconquered at any cost. In Mendoza he met many of the fugitives who crossed the Andes after the disaster of Rancagua, and speedily learned from them that the collapse of the revolution was due to the incapacity of Carrera, and to see in O'Higgins the man of the future. He and the Mendocinos received these fugitives with open arms and with generous hospitality, but Carrera, though an exile on foreign soil, 
arrogated to himself a position as chief of an independent nation, and as such issued decrees from the barracks where he and his suite were quartered. San Martin asserted his authority with firmness and with great prudence, but these Chileans introduced an element of disorder into the province. Conflicts were frequent between the police and the despaired soldiery, who refused obedience to any but their own officers, and continued the intersigned dispute which had resulted so fatally on the plains of Maipo. San Martin put a summary end to this disorder by surrounding the barracks where Carrera and his partisans were lodged, with the troops of Las Eras and O'Higgins. Carrera was forced to retire to San Luis, where he afterwards proceeded to Buenos Aires, and his adherents dispersed. At the same time, a commission of Chileans was appointed to collect the remnants of the treasure brought from Santiago, which was lodged in the coffers of the province, until such time as it might be employed for the liberation of Chile. Thus was Carrera crushed by the men of iron, and his insensate ambition no more troubled the destinies of his native country. Nevertheless, he was well received in Buenos Aires by Alvear, who about that time became supreme director of the United Provinces. He and Carrera were kindred spirits. Together they had served in Spain, and together they had dreamed dreams of power and dominion in their own land. Now jealousy of San Martin became a further tie between them. In January 1815, San Martin, alleging the state of his health as a reason, sent in his resignation to the supreme director, who at once accepted it, and named Don Gregorio Perdriel as his successor. Perdriel proceeded at once to Mendoza, but the leading men of the city assembled in open cabildo, and, supported by the mass of the people, refused to accept this new governor, and insisted upon the withdrawal of his resignation by San Martin. Perdriel was recalled to Buenos Aires, and Alvear was himself deposed in April by a mutiny of the troops in the capital. General Rondeau, who was at that time in command of the army of Peru, was named by the Cabildo as his successor. Alvear, in his fall, dragged with him the assembly of the year 1813, and the Cabildo instructed the new government to call at once a national congress elected by universal suffrage. The men of Mendoza applauded the deposition of Alvear, and declared that they would not in future recognize any national authority save one based upon the will of the entire people. In logical pursuance of which declaration they decreed that the nomination of their governor by the central power was null and void, and by acclamation named San Martin as the governor elected by themselves. The cabildos of San Luis and San Juan confirmed this declaration and decree, so that the province of Cuyo became for the first time an independent state, ruled by a governor of its own selection. The problem now before San Martin was one of extreme difficulty. From this small society he proposed to raise an army and to replenish an empty treasury without exhausting the source of production and without waste, by inoculating all with his own ideas and so leading them each man in his own station and according to his own capacity to work zealously together for one end he turned the whole province of cuyo into an association of workers and fighters whose cooperation should result in the reconquest of chile he commenced by the invocation of the war spirit among them organizing their militia 
and forming even the children into regiments, doing military exercise and carrying their own flags. He invited foreign residents to enlist, among whom the most forward were the English, who raised, at their own cost, a free company of light infantry, having the right to name their own officers. But the nucleus of his army he formed of well-disciplined troops. This spirit he kept alive by exaggerated reports of the strength of the enemy in Chile, and by alarms of an imminent invasion. The people seconded his efforts by voluntary contributions for the public service. They lent mules, horses, and harness, whatever they were required, sure of receiving them back when the need had passed over. Cartmen and muleteers carried ammunition and supplies, and the landowners pastured his troop horses free of charge, seeking no other payment than general approbation. Punishment for minor offences was inflicted in fines, which were paid into the public treasury. The ordinary taxes were rigidly enforced. Cuyo bled money at every pore for the redemption of South America. To give to his exactions the character of legal contributions, authorized by the will of the people he used the cabildos as his agents their authority as a sort of parliament giving a moral support to measures which were in reality arbitrary decrees and he was well supported by the lieutenant governors of san luis and san juan men of inflexible will in everything related to the public service in eighteen fourteen the general revenues of the province raised by customs duties and municipal taxes amounted to nearly one hundred and eighty thousand dollars the reconquest of chile by the spaniards which put an end to the transandine trade cut off two-thirds of this revenue so that in eighteen fifteen it was insufficient to meet current expenses voluntary subscriptions failed to supply the deficiency a forced loan was levied upon the spanish residents but these were mere expedients export duties were imposed a monthly war contribution was established the tithes and the fund for the redemption of indian captives and the intestate estates of deceased spaniards were sequestered a general property tax was levied and forced loans from spaniards and portuguese were frequently exacted unpaid volunteers were never wanting when assistance was required in preparing the outfit for the army news was received that an expedition of ten thousand men had left spain for the river plate under the command of morillo san martin called for a public subscription in aid of the federal government the ladies of mendoza headed by his own wife set a noble example by throwing their jewels into the public chest the fall of montevideo diverted the course of the expedition, but the funds collected remained in the treasury. Amid all the din of military preparation, the material interests of the province were never neglected. Education was studiously fomented, vaccination was introduced, much attention was bestowed upon the public promenades and upon the system of irrigation, and the most rigid economy was enforced in every branch of the administration the people saw in san martin a father whom they loved and a ruler whom they respected his manners contributed to this authority and to the popularity gained by his deeds his austere figure aptly symbolized the paternal despotism he established and gave him a certain mysterious prestige alone among his friends but without one confidant nor even a consular he looked after everything himself with no more help than that of one secretary and two clerks. 
His want of education has caused some historians to decry his talents. It was the same with William of Orange and with Washington. They shone not by their intellect, but by their deeds and by their personal character. As Macaulay says of Cromwell, he spoke folly and did great things. Or, as Pascal says, the heart has reason of which reason knows nothing. In San Martin, the will was the dominant characteristic. He worked not by inspiration, but by calculation, searching carefully first for the thing necessary to be done, and then doing it. It has been said of him that he was not a person, but a system. He wore almost constantly the plain uniform of the mounted grenadiers, with the Argentine cockade on his cocked hat. He was an early riser, and usually spent all the morning at his desk. At midday he went to the kitchen, chose two plates of the food prepared, and frequently ate it there standing, washing it down with two glasses of wine. In the winter he would afterwards take a short walk and smoke a cigarette of black tobacco. In summer he would sleep for two hours on a skin stretched on the veranda. All the year round he drank coffee which he prepared himself. Then, after another spell at his desk, would spend the afternoon inspecting the public offices. In the evening his house was open to visitors, who were forbidden to talk politics, but if invited to a game of chess, found in him a doughty adversary. At ten o'clock he wished them good night, and after a light supper retired to his couch, but if illness prevented him from sleeping, he would rise and repair to his desk. The system of government followed by San Martin in Cuyo somewhat resembled that of Sancho Panza in his island of Barrataria, or that of the legendary king Zafadola, who visited his taxpayers in their houses, asking them how they could expect him to govern if they did not pay the taxes. An officer presented a petition for extra rations as his salary was not enough to live on. All officers are in the same case, was the answer. A man of San Juan, who had been made prisoner by the Spaniards in Chile and released on parole, claimed exemption from service in the army on that account. The government takes that responsibility upon himself. You are at liberty to attack the enemy. But if your hands are tied by a ridiculous prejudice, they shall be united by a platoon. The wife of a sergeant asked pardon for some neglect of duty by her husband. I have nothing to do with women, but with soldiers subject to military discipline. A prisoner applied for his release in the name of the patron saint of the army. He did enough for you in saving your life. A farmer being accused of speaking against La Patria, he annulled the sentence on condition that the accused should send ten dozen pumpkins for the supply of the troops. To try the temper of his officers, he got up a bullfight and sent them into the rings as torreadors. As he applauded their courage, he turned to O'Higgins, who was beside him, and said, These lunatics are the men we want to smash up the Spaniards. One day he went to the powder factory in full uniform, booted and spurred, and was refused admission by the sentry. He came back in a linen suit and slippers on, and was admitted, after which he gave orders that the sentry should be relieved, and with great formality presented him with an ounce of gold. One day an officer presented himself, asking for the citizen Don José de San Martín, and being admitted, confessed to him that he had lost at play regimental money, which had been entrusted to him. San Martin opened the cabinet, took out gold coins to the amount named, and gave them to him, saying, 
pay this money into the regimental chest and keep the secret for if general san martin ever hears that you have told of it he will have you shot upon the spot two franciscan friars who according to him had shown themselves unfriendly to quote, political regeneration unquote, were forbidden by him to confess or to preach and were put under arrest in their convent until further orders he instructed the parish priests to preach of quote, the justice with which america had adopted the system of liberty end quote, and seeing that they failed to do so he further warned them that severe measures would be adopted if they neglected quote, so sacred a duty end quote. among his contemporaries there were at the time but few who estimated him at his real value he himself indulged in no illusions on the matter but stoically trusted to time and patience to give him his true place among them as he wrote to godoy cruz concerning reports which were in circulation quote, you will say that i was vexed yes my friend somewhat but after reflection i followed the example of diogenes i dived into a butt of philosophy a public man must suffer anything in order that the vessel may reach her port at that time he suffered from chronic disease and could only sleep for a few minutes at once seated on a chair and was compelled to take opium to gain a needful rest on the twenty ninth of november eighteen fifteen the army under rondeau was completely defeated by pezuela at sipe in upper peru morillo's expedition was triumphant in colombia and the royalists sang te deums both in europe and in america in these days of despair san martin invited his officers to a banquet never did he appear in better spirits when the dessert was placed on the board he rose to his feet and in a loud voice proposed a toast quote, to the first shot fired beyond the andes against the oppressors of chile End quote. his words found echo in every heart confidence revived from that moment the passage of the andes and the reconquest of chile ceased to be a vague idea it became a plan of campaign which was to change the aspect of the war End of chapter nine